Well, good afternoon. I know you've been already blessed as I have been by these messages. And you know, just to be still from all the normal stuff like today, cutting your grass, and just to be alone with the Lord and quiet before Him. Wow, doesn't get any better than that, does it? Not when we open our hearts to Him. That's what we want to do in this time as well. So let's pray together. Father, we do come with humble, needy hearts before You, and and yet we're thankful that You are always, always ready to meet us. You invite us to come. Let everyone who's thirsty come. Come and drink. And you promised that out of our belly should flow rivers, ultimately, of living water that would be a blessing to the people around us. That's what we want most of all, that you would use us to be those vessels and instruments of the blessing that you want to bestow on all those around us and those entrusted to us in our own homes and families and ministries and places of employment. Here we are, Lord. Just fill us with your Holy Spirit, intellect, emotion, will, body, soul, spirit, that we might be definitely new kind of people on the face of this earth than what we see so prevalent around us. Oh, God, meet us, we pray. And so we commit this time to you with thanksgiving now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is a men's only meeting, and so that means I can say stuff that I could never get away with if the women were here. You know, It's not that I'm going to say stuff that's wrong. It's just that they might object, some of them might object to it because um, we're going to talk about men's place and our role and our function under God's design. And we all know that's not a very popular idea in the world in which we live. Uh, we all know that men are under attack in this country, are they not? Uh, most assuredly that we've been put or they would like to relegate us to a position of insignificance or that we are by nature those who are the problem. You know, we are the source of all ills that exist on the planet Earth, it would seem. If you listen to the media and the more liberal and progressive mainstream that incessantly attacks who we are and what we are as as men. We ought to know, though, they aren't our enemy. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood. We're told not to. But we do wrestle, and we wrestle with principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. And when I've conceived of these things and thought more of them, it's clear to me that Satan has made the United States his number one target. And if you think about it, it makes sense that he would do so. America, the United States, supports missions worldwide like no other nation on the planet. For instance, in India, those who are in India tell me that 90% of the financial 
resources for the church in India come from the United States. We fuel missions. Now, it's pitifully little compared to what we have and what we could do, but the reality is that the United States fuels missions like no other country. So it only makes sense that Satan would go after us in order to bring this nation down. Now, if you think about your Bible uh, history, you remember that there was a time when Israel came out of the wilderness and they encamped there on the other side of the Jordan. And there was a king got really scared. Balak got really scared of them. So he went to see the local or bid the local shaman and witch doctor come I'll give you all kinds of money just come and curse these people for me you remember that story the really humorous part is that the donkey had more sense than he did but anyway uh, that, that thing in that Bible makes me he he's so nonchalant about a donkey talking to him you'd think he'd he, well, maybe that got left out. Anyway, uh, nonetheless, three times, isn't it? He had Balak, had Balaam come curse him. And he couldn't do it. God wouldn't let him do it. The words wouldn't come out of his mouth. In fact, what came out of his mouth was blessings. So Balak said, look, the, he's a pagan the God in this area is uh, too strong and he's against us. Let's go over here. So they keep moving around to different places thinking that that would make all the difference because the spirits of this area aren't for me, but maybe they'll be for me if we move over here. Well, there's one God, and that was nonsense. Everywhere they went, Balaam kept prophesying good for Israel. And so Balak got really mad about the whole thing and and there was the donkey, of course, that tried to prevent it and to begin with. But when it was all said and done, that seemingly ended it, but not so. And there are little streams of things we read in the Scriptures as to what Balaam did do. He couldn't curse Israel, but he could, he hoped, to get God to do it. Wow. Wow. Look at Numbers chapter 31 and verse 16. There's just a line here. That's all you see. But it's repeated in the book of Revelation as well. It's a strategy of Satan's. Numbers 31.16 Behold... These caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. And what he told them to do was send your girls in among the men and let them intermarry with those of you in your culture and let the influence of their wives now begin to turn them and twist them towards your gods and your idolatry. Because he knew, he's pretty smart, he knew that if he could do that, they would no longer have the blessing of God on. They couldn't uh, have the blessing. Because now they've turned from the Lord, broken covenant with God, 
and then God would be compelled to judge them. The same idea comes up in the book of Revelation where he refers to this same idea in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 14. Revelation 2.14, But I have a few things here to the church of Pergamum. I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept Balak, who, I mean, kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols, meaning engage in idolatry, and to commit acts of immorality. So you see the strategy, don't you? That the idea is, is just to push a nation into sin in which it invites the judgment of God. Satan cannot destroy the United States of America. He can push the country and lure the country into such a sinful condition that God will have to destroy the country. That at least is the plan, and that's the hope. That's why we need revival, don't we? Revival in the midst of the years. Because how well is he doing at that strategy? Well, you have but to look at the Romans chapter 1, don't you? Three times God gave them over, gave them up and gave them up. I'm going to tell you, if you look around you and consider Romans 1, in the progress and the dissension, rather, of a nation and a culture, we're in the latter part of it, aren't we? You just read that list. There's no more natural affection anymore. People applaud those who do evil. They call evil good and good evil. No more natural affection? My goodness. You know, the governor of Virginia said that he believed there should woman should have the right to postpartum abortions. It's a technical way of saying after the baby's born, you can still kill them. That's infanticide is what that is. There's no more natural affection even for a woman, a mother for her child. And they push for it in the state of New York. They passed the laws as he, governor, demanded it, that there be third-term abortions. There is no OBGYN doctor who will tell you that that's a necessity, a medical necessity. It's not. There's such a thing as C-sections. You can take the baby out of the mom. You don't have to abort them. They're quite capable of having C-sections in the third trimester. There's never, ever an occasion when that is a medical necessity. just isn't. That's just flat out, we want to end this pregnancy for our own personal reasons. So you see this, but this is applauded and pushed, and they will fight you tooth and nail for the right to abort babies like Justice Kavanaugh and all that he went through because they were afraid he would not support Roe versus Wade. I mean, that's the country we live in. You see it unhinged, don't you? That people are unreasonable, irrational, more and more. That's the world we live in. Now, I don't know that I agree totally with this. I think it's a little bit debatable. But what Satan's trying to do 
and this was shared with me by someone, I don't remember who, maybe one of you all, but here's God's order. This is where I'd probably get in trouble with the women here. But, you know, it's God, man, woman, children, earth. That's God's sequence, isn't it? Now, okay, I get it. Man and woman, yes, we're all one in Jesus Christ. We're equal heirs of grace. Uh, they're equally blessed, equally accepted, uh, equally adopted into God's family with us. But the roles are different. Men are elders of churches, not women. I'm sorry if you are from a church where you have a female pastor, but I can't twist the Word of God to fit your situation. Yeah, you have to be the husband of one wife and that makes it really hard for a woman uh, unless the weird world we live in. Uh, now, if any man desires the office of a bishop or an elder, he desires a good thing. That's First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1 where he says that. And then the wives are being subjection to their husbands in everything. We're to love our wives, but we are the ones who are head of our own households. And it says that their fathers are to bring up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We do that with the help of our wives, but there's no question about the God's order and where he looks to the responsible men are you. So what has happened in the world we live in? Well, Satan likes to distort, twist, twist and turn upside down everything God does, doesn't he? So what is it now? Well, it looks more like this. Now the environmentalists say we need to preserve the planet. The planet's what matters most, our survival. There are those who are telling us that the whole world's going to just fall apart in 2030. You know, we only got 12 years and we're all be dead in a what is Alexander Ocasio Cortez yeah that this is the the doomsday look we know how it's going to end and it isn't going to be with plastic bottles (laughs) God has it all lined up how it's going to end it's going to be with fire and it'll be at his hand not man's So it's nonsense, we know, but they're ready to go at it and to curtail life as we know it in order to preserve Earth for its own reasons and purposes. Now, pollution's one thing. We should be concerned about air pollution, but they're way beyond that. Now, this has uh, its own little agenda attached to it. Really, full-blown environmentalists think that the optimum population for the United States is 450 million environmentally sensitive people. You're going to have to get rid of 7.5 billion people, which is probably why they promote abortion to begin with. And so that's Earth. And then it's this one. I'm not so sure. I don't. They're they're in a combat here, I suppose. Sometimes children are running the show in so many areas, but I don't know anymore with abortion whether it's women now ahead of 
children. But we're on, we're not quite in the bottom of the totem pole. That's reserved for God. He's out of it altogether in our thinking, in our living, in any way whatsoever. Now you, I don't know, I, there may be things you could question about this and there certainly are other things we can look to as to what's going on in our country. But think again of how important it is. And I'm not just interested in saving America to save America or our way of life. I am interested in thwarting Satan's desires and design against world missions. Granted, God's bigger. He's going to build His church. And the gates of hell are not going to win. They're not going to prevail against Him. But I want America to be a part of it as long as is earthly possible. God can raise up another country to do His bidding. He can do it. And He will if He has to. The the South Koreans are great in missions. But I want it to be America as long as it can be. Well, then it falls on you and me to be the men that God's called us to be, regardless of what the world thinks about it, that we have to be men. Now, with that in view, I'm well aware, and maybe you are too, that so many grow up without a dad at all. And many kids have come to me, and a guy come to me said, I don't know what a man is supposed to be. I don't even know what I'm supposed to be in my own home. So he has the scriptures, but he had no model, no role model, nothing to pattern his life after. And I fear there are many in that category. They don't know really what is a real man. That is what I want to talk to you about. And I'm not going to go into it in real detail. I'm just going to do this kind of sketchy because I hope I can beat the clock and we can have at least a few minutes of prayer before this is over about you know where we are and what the country entails. Now, when they don't have a dad at home or the dad they have at home is no model of anything worth following, then they are left a little bankrupt. So where do they turn? Well, are we going to find it at Hollywood? So what's a, what's a real man? What does he really look like? Well, is it this? <laughs> yeah, it's Barney. Yeah. He did have one bullet they gave him. You know, that's a real man. Or for you younger guys, maybe it's Kip. You know, there's, there's a real man. Now, actually, what Hollywood would more boast in was, you know, Rambo kind of guy, you know, bursting muscles and... You know, the Hollywood picture of a real man is some guy that can impose his will on everybody. Somebody can endure enormous amounts of pain and inflict enormous amounts of pain on everybody around him or the James Bond who seems to get every woman he ever sets his eyes on, throws herself at him. And, okay, let's be honest. Our flesh really... Appeal, that's very appealing to our flesh to be that kind of a man. But we all know inside that that's so superficial and phony. It's Hollywood. It's not real. It's not where people really actually live. And the results of broken homes and 
shattered lives ought to tell us that's not the kind of men that we want to be. So where do we go? Well, we're going to go to the Word of God. And I want to look at it in these terms for us. What, what is a real man? What does the Bible say about it? Well, number one, there's God's call. And for that, we go back to Genesis. Let's find out what God said about it in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, we know that what the Bible says, these are also familiar verses. And honestly, I am going to deliberately go pretty quickly through this, um, not to skimp it, but just to give you something to think about. Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image. So he created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. So both the man and the woman were created in the image of God. So it isn't a sexual distinction that makes us in the image of God because it's true of women as well. We think, we feel, we have moral judgments and choices. We're capable of that. That we have a spiritual worshiping nature to us that gravitates towards God, has a kinship with God. It's a great privilege man has to be made in the image of God because he doesn't say this about any other creature he created. So that we're unique. You have a high status that's unique among the whole created order. You're made in the image of God. Well, then we ought to to be real men as we were created to be, we need to be more and more like him, shouldn't we? That was the original design and intention. Well, look what's next here, 28. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, over everything that moves on the earth. Then skip over to chapter 2. In verse 15, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden and gave him a job to do, to cultivate it and keep it. He's a gardener. Mr. Stair is is close, you know, to Adam. Closer to Adam than we are. So he's he's a gardener. He's going to... But it's bigger than that. He's not just cultivating and keeping the garden. He's cultivating and keeping the entirety of creation. Eve included are all under his care. You can read this, of course, in Psalm 8, which is brought over to Hebrews chapter 2. And there, in reference to man, which will be fulfilled ultimately in Jesus, but I'm reading from Hebrews with this, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 6. But one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You've made him a little lower than the angels. True, their spirit beings were material. You have crowned him though with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands and you put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, we've been given an enormous position prior to the fall to care for, protect, and guide all creation. And then we read elsewhere where Adam walked with the Lord in the cool of the day. 
We were created by Him and for Him, meaning for His pleasure. The Presbyterians have it right when they say, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God for whom we were made. And I'm ever so glad they added this part, and enjoy Him forever. We're supposed to delight ourselves in the Lord. He ought to be a delight to us. So what are real men as God designed them? They're men who live for the glory of God, fulfilling His design, plans, and purposes, and enjoying Him along the way. Well, what happened? We know the fall happened. So there was man's collapse. So here are real men created in God's image, created for fellowship, always under God's authority. Real men have authority, but it is used to take care of others, right? They're to tend it, cultivate it, care for it. And those words mean protect it and develop it. That's what you're to be. And I will just throw this in. I'm not going to talk about the things in my book because you can get the book. But there is a section there in reference to pornography that as men, your role is to protect women. They're weaker than you. The Bible says so. Even if it's Ronda Rousey, who I would not want to go to fight with, She would win. I would lose. But she's still a woman. And she's weaker than we are emotionally, no matter how much bravado they put out. They are biologically wired to depend upon men. Because they know, should they become pregnant, they need a safe place to take care of that child. And so they need a man to protect them, care for them, and provide for them while they're giving birth and after they're protected while they're caring for a child. This is all the way God wired them. And they innately know it. You're to protect them, not use them and abuse them. When you do that with pornography and other sexual sins, you are running right counter to every reason why, well, that reason why God made you. You've fallen from God's design. So we are to protect them and cultivate them, not use and abuse. So that's real men. But after the fall, what happened? Well, Adam chose to follow Eve willfully. He protected himself, you remember. He hid, but we'll see this in a minute came very self-sufficient. He sewed fig leaves together to cover himself up and self-preserving. What happened here in Genesis chapter 3? I know I'm going fast, but it's intentional, and hopefully you can follow what I'm saying easily enough. When God came, he knew what had happened. This wasn't unknown to him. But he asked this question in verse 9. The Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? God knew where he was. He wanted Adam to know where he was. They hid themselves in the presence of the Lord from among the trees of the garden. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, 
naked, so I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now look what man said. He is her protector. That's what God designed him to be. What does he do here? The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me from the tree and and I ate it. Wow. So throw Eve under the bus to protect himself. Really, this is a swipe at God and Eve. But he's not taking responsibility for his own actions here, is he? He's throwing it off on God. The woman you gave me, she gave this to me and I ate it. It's really, you know, her fault, but, you know, you had a hand in it kind of thing. Wow. He wouldn't take responsibility for this. So, learning from a negative thing here, we can take a positive out of it. Real men aren't like that. Real men take responsibility for their actions. When you mess up, own up. Take it on the chin. But real men take responsibility for their actions even when it costs them to do so. We're going to own up to where we're wrong. And we're not going to shift the blame to other people around us. Where you're wrong, you're wrong. And own up to it. God gives grace to the humble, but He resists the proud. He is dead set against them. He gives grace to the humble. Well, what else? Real men are willing to do this before God. And real men are willing to sacrifice themselves to protect those under their care, which is what Adam did not do. But that's our role, that's our place, that's our function as real men. Now, God has an answer for this. We know his cure was he promised that from the seed of the woman would come one whose heel would be bruised, but he would crush the head of the serpent. God ultimately laid the blame with the serpent, but Adam and Eve were guilty down the line, in line with the serpent, but eventually this one would come. And we have every reason to believe that Adam believed the Lord and that promise. Though there were consequences to his sin, he was expelled from the garden We have every reason to believe he believed the Lord for this because this story couldn't have been perpetuated by anybody other than Adam for all these years. He's the one who told the stories and recounted it uh, from everyone to, to generation after generation. He preserved that promise so that real men, they're willing to accept God's gift and provision. Also, he was willing to shed his fig leaf for the garments that God made for him at the sacrifice of an animal and clothed himself with what God provided. That was a picture of salvation. And we know our works, our fig leaves of good works are worthless before God, and yet he can clothe us in the righteousness of Christ, which we heard from Tim this morning. So that's what God has made provision for us. So repentant faith, which is 
what God's looking for in us involves turning from, that's the negative side of faith, and turning to. It's one motion, but you turn from your sins, your faith in your own works, your self-rule, you turn your back on faith in that, and you put your faith in the shed blood of Jesus on the cross to wash your sins away. You put your faith in His perfect righteousness, which He can put to your account forever in heaven. And you submit yourself to the authority of Jesus Christ over your life. That's saving faith. It's a repentant faith. The two cannot be separated. They can be distinguished, but they cannot be separated and you still have real saving faith. So we can put it like this. Repentance is turning from self as Savior and Lord. This sums it up quickly. And by faith, turning to Jesus as Savior and Lord. It's every bit that simple when it's really meant from the heart. Self's your enemy, your biggest enemy. So you must turn from putting your faith in you to put your faith in Him. Repentance is giving up on self and giving everything over to Jesus. That's liberty, really. That's joy. That's peace. That's freedom when a man does that. All right. That's out of Adam and into Christ when that takes place. God's cure is Jesus Christ. That's God's cure. And if we really want to know what a real man is, it's Jesus, isn't it? He's amazing. Here's the odd thing. Without being effeminate, Jesus is also everything a woman ought to be. (laughs) Isn't he? Because he's the perfect human. But in particular, we can extract from the life of Christ for ourselves as men, he was the perfect male. He's the perfect man. And what was he like? Well, he was always about his father's business. He's totally committed. You heard Jerry talk about that, didn't he? Where he he played on the word please, didn't he? That was almost a thematic thing for him. He traced through all these verses on pleasing the Lord. Well, in John 8, 29, there Jesus says, I do always the things which please the Father. Wow. Okay, that's a standard you and I aren't going to measure up to, but you can aim at it. You and I can aim at it. We can make that the bent of our being rather than pleasing ourselves. We can aim at pleasing God. And you know what? Jesus said we're to take up our cross every day. This is a daily problem, so there's a daily uh, action that needs to be taken. So we start the day and say, Lord, not my will, your will be done today. I live today not to please me, but to please you. Did you say that to the Lord this morning? That ought to be done every single morning. Lord, today, I'm not here today to please myself, I'm here to please you. My joy is pleasing you not indulging my flesh. 
He depended on the Father at all times. John 5, 19, he says, so the, so the, a real man is dependent on the Lord. Now, we're taught real men are independent. We don't depend on anybody for anything. Not so. Real men know they're totally dependent on the God in heaven above. And they acknowledge it. And that makes us men of prayer and faith. Because we know we need Him. John 5.19 Truly, truly, I say to the Son, man can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner, but only as he sees it in the Father. 12.13 He says this, Where am I here? I think I've got the wrong reference for which I'm sorry here because I don't think that's what was I'm looking for. Uh, well, I have to skip that one because that's not the right reference I wanted for you. But it, what I was looking for is where he says he only speaks what he hears the Father say. So his words and his actions were dictated in reliance and dependence on the Father. He subordinated his appetites to obey the Father. He had a legitimate need. He was hungry in the wilderness. Remember the first temptation? Satan played on it and said, Look, you're hungry. You've got the power. You could turn these stones into bread. Eat. Hunger isn't sin. You're not satisfying a sinful appetite here. It's a legitimate appetite it's a legitimate need so you have the power meet the need no he refused he wouldn't satisfy even legitimate appetites with illegitimate means i understand sexual appetites are natural to us as men we have them and stronger some days than others and you might think, well, I, can, I need to satisfy that appetite. Well, not through illegitimate means. No, Jesus didn't. He made a commitment that he would let the Father do it in his good time. So all this premarital sex and all that goes with pornography. No, those are things illegitimate means. No, Jesus subordinated his natural appetites in order to meet, let the Father meet those needs. This is a real man, how real men live. He served those around him sacrificially. That's Mark 10.45 where Scripture says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You realize Jesus never performed a single miracle for himself. He wouldn't do it in the wilderness. Not one of them was for his own benefit. It was for his disciples or for hurting people around him. He didn't abuse that enormous power that he possessed at all. He was the most selfless individual that ever lived. So you want to be a real man then be a selfless one. That's how the perfect man lived. 
What else? He was a man of prayer. I could give you a host of references, but this one's in Mark 135 where he had worked all night long healing and preaching and must have been exhausted, but he got up a great while before the sun rose to be alone and went out into the way out of the city, out from everybody, and there prayed. You find that over and over and over again. He went to a mountain to pray. He went out into the desert to pray. He sought places repeatedly alone. So here's the perfect man as a man of prayer. He prays. He, if Jesus, who wasn't uh, hung with a sin nature the way you and I have in flesh of the magnitude that we possess, if he felt the need to seek the Father like that, how much more should we be doing it if we're going to walk in his footsteps? So a real man, he's a man of prayer. Full of humility. Art mentioned this verse this morning. This is the only self-descriptive words of Jesus. I'm meek and lowly of heart. It's the only things he ever said about himself other than the I am verses, I'm the bread of life, I'm the water of life, light of the world. But here, as far as nature and character qualities, meek and lowly. So a real man, he's full of humility before God and a servant to others. Real humility runs vertical as a creature before the sovereign God. It also runs horizontal. I must esteem other people of greater importance than myself. So I serve them because I esteem them at least potentially of far more value in the kingdom than I will ever be. So humility cannot just run one direction. It has to run in both directions. He restrained his power, Matthew 26, 51 to 53. He said, put away your sword. We know it was Peter. And he said, put away your sword. He lives by the sword. He's going to die by the sword. Don't you know I could call 12 legions of angels if I wanted to? Wow. Do you know how many angels that is? In a legion were 6,000 Roman troops, so you're talking about 72,000 angels. If you look at the Old Testament, you know, in Hezekiah, one angel killed, what, 169,000 men one night? Can you imagine what 72,000 of them would do? (laughs) You know, there'd be nobody left. But he had that kind of power and he didn't use it. Wow. You know, real men know how to hold their temper. They know how to restrain themselves. You could do something. You could say something. But you know it's better you don't. So you have self-control. That's tough. It's very hard. But real men are men of self-control. They don't blow up and lash out left and right. Well, finally here, he gave himself up for the well-being of others. And that is our role as men. We're to sacrifice ourselves, put aside our preferences and choices 
for the well-being of our wives and our children, our brothers, our sisters in Christ. We're to live servant-like lives. You've been given authority if you're a married man. You have that position in your home. But it's the, you bear the burden of leadership for her sake and the sake of your children. You bear that burden for their benefit, not yours. You take their needs and interest into con, uh, consideration, but chiefly God's interest and concerns. Leadership's a burden. It's easier to be single. You know, I chose that for 38 years, and you know, but I gave it up. She was worth it. <laughs> um, but you take on a whole different set of responsibilities, and you do so for their sake. There's so much more we could say about it, but I want to stop there and just give you stuff here to think about and meditate on. Some of you, as I said, maybe you didn't, you grew up and there was no real father figure for you. Well, here he is. There he is. Now, we have a few minutes left, thankfully. And what I want to do in the time that remains is I talked about this country and what Satan, I think, is attempting to do. We need revival. And it, it needs to start with us, if it can. And we need to be different people back home and where we work and where we live. And that takes courage. I could have added that. It takes a lot of courage uh, to be real men. But we don't have a few minutes left. But I'm just going to throw it open for prayer. Uh, whatever's on your heart. And then I'll close in just a few moments. Lord, we come to you. I've been seeking your face this weekend. and Oh God, you promised that if we would draw near to you, you would draw near to us. And we declare to you how, how desperately we need you. We see a world around us that just seems to be flying out of control and plunging deeper, deeper into sin, we seem so powerless to stop it. You said, though, Lord, and we hold you to your promise, when the enemy comes in like a flood, you said the Spirit of the Lord would raise up a standard against him. We know that it has to be by the Spirit through your people. Oh, God, revive us in the midst of the years. Make us a strong church, powerful church that we might begin once again to turn back the tide of evil, iniquity, and unrighteousness that's flooding this nation, that we might be those who not only live lives that are counter to that, but that we will preach messages that are counter to that, that will be anointed by your Holy Spirit. Indeed, do bless the pulpits of this nation and of this country power those servants of yours who stand in those pulpits and handle your word and preach your word. Lord, bless them that they might preach your word in season and out of season when it is popular and when it isn't popular, when it's acceptable, when it isn't acceptable, when their messages are not acceptable, but they'll have courage to be faithful to you in all that is set before them. Oh, God, make us such, we pray. 
have your will in us. We don't know what you have individually planned for each one of us. We know you do have a plan, but you equip us and empower us to fulfill those plans and purposes according to your good pleasure. In this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.